Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today I'm speaking with Elizabeth M. Castillo, a multilingual poet, writer, teacher, and parent. Elizabeth's childhood was split between the Congo and England, and she spent her adolescent years on the tiny tropical island of Mauritius. She now lives in Paris with her family and two cats. Elizabeth homeschools her two daughters and writes a variety of things in a variety of languages and under a variety of pen names. She also runs a handful of small businesses, dabbles in charity work, and teaches languages part-time. In her writing, Elizabeth explores the different countries and cultures she grew up with, as well as themes of race and ethnicity, motherhood, womanhood, language, loss and grief, and a touch of magical realism. In this conversation, we talk about language and identity and how that can shift at different points in one's life. We also talk about Elizabeth's multilingual homeschooling journey with her daughters and her work writing multilingual poetry and children's books, as well as her forthcoming podcast. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Elizabeth. My name is Elizabeth M. Castillo. That's one of my pen names. Um, I am a poet and a writer and a language teacher. I live in Paris with my French husband and two children. I am myself British Mauritian, uh, extra points for anyone who can find Mauritius on a map. Um, And uh, I speak five languages, although my Portuguese is fairly rusty. And I'm also a homeschooling mother. One of the main reasons why I homeschool my kids is for the multilingual element. So uh, I'm a big fan of your podcast and it just feels very right for me to be here and to be talking to you. In my writing, I, especially in my poetry and my short fiction, not so much in my novels, um, I use a lot of different languages, English, French, Spanish, Creole. Um, and even in my children's books that I'm working on at the moment, um, I'm very interested in, in writing books that have an element of bilingualism to them in a natural way that doesn't feel too sort of, you know, pedagogical or teachery. So you grew up in Mauritius, is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So tell me about what that was like and, and your language experiences growing up. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, if I may, I can start before then. I was born in the Congo, um, Francophone, what used to be called Zaire, and now it is the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, so our first language, me, my brother and sister, was actually French, um, strictly speaking. My parents both are Mauritian, but they both grew up in speaking Creole and French, but then moved to English speaking countries. So they already had a trilingual element, both of them, which is in fact something they had in common, I reckon. Um, And then we moved to London and I started uh, school and obviously everything happened in English. And my parents never really saw the value, uh, which is something that I constantly reproach them (laughs) for today, is they never really saw the value of speaking French to us and to a greater extent Creole because nobody spoke Creole it wasn't didn't have a written form when are you going to use it in life um and obviously there's the remains of the colonial aspect of of how we look at language and and 
and its value, you know, that's there. So they never really spoke to us. And it's only when I we moved to Mauritius when I was about 10 that we were thrown into society of people who only spoke French, um, which is a, a Mauritian French, a very, a very different sort of French than the French they speak right now here in Paris, for example. Um, so in our house, there was English. With my friends, there was French. And then on the streets, on the buses, etc., there was Creole, uh, which I did not, again, have, have enough of a basis in to even now have a confidence speaking as an adult, which is, I mean, such a tragedy, to be honest. So I am determined to reclaim that part of my heritage um, in my writing, in my in my day-to-day activity, but especially in my writing. I, it's almost a political statement to be like, this is a language of value and I will speak it in spite of you all. <laughs> so yes, I grew up pretty much trilingual in that sense. Um, and then I went on to study languages at university. I studied Spanish and Portuguese and French um, uh, because I'd never actually studied French and I love French literature. And uh, and yeah, from there, from there, I lived in Chile for a year. I worked in Mexico for a little bit and then I moved to Paris. Ah, That's amazing. And I love what you said about that. It's almost a political statement to um, reclaim that language and say, I'm going to speak it. Absolutely. It's necessary. And I think I think the strength of my 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 sort of my vehemence for it or my real passion for it came when I had children, because I think we often don't think about our not lineage, but sort of, you know, what we're giving to our kids. And suddenly I realized, no, my kids actually have such rich history. Um, I'm fairly fair skinned as a person, but I'm I'm extremely mixed race, divided into eighths if we go up to the, the grandparents. Um, and language is such a big part of that. And I don't want to deny them that. I want it to be something that they are proud of. Um, so that really came, I think, and informed that side of it. In the same way, my, my husband, for example, has Jewish roots. And although he's not he's, he's not a practicing Jew at all, but there's such a rich history there beyond the sort of French history. And it's important, I think, I, I do believe it's important to kind of know where we came from um in order to know where we're going that sounds like a bit of a cliche I don't know if it is if it's not then I invented it yeah hey um but yeah I think it's very important and and when we become parents I don't know if you have children Gabrielle but it becomes something that's like even more pressing for us now in in our outlook on the world yeah yeah I I don't have children myself but I I can completely understand that feeling of really thinking about where you came from more when you have children to pass that down to and thinking kind of intentionally about what you're going to teach them and and help them understand about your past and their past and family history. Intentionally, that's that's the right word, intentionally. Absolutely. Yeah. So before you had children, when you knew you were about to become a mother, what did you envision about what multilingualism might look like in your family and what does it look like today if that's different that's that's a good question to be honest I've I've grown up with so many languages around me and not just so many languages but with so many multilingual people it's something that we in fact remark on my siblings and I uh, when for example we have guests in a family setting who only speak one language only then do we realize how much we code switch and we jump from here, there and everywhere because everyone understands it. Um, and we have to consciously slow down and be like, okay, only English, you know, or only French or only whatever. And so I think that I went into motherhood just assuming 
that my kids would speak the way I do. And they do. <laughs> um, what I wasn't prepared for, though, is because I had my children here in Paris where I live and I made the decision to homeschool them uh, before. They, they never went to school, basically, before they, they were of school age. Um, and I always assumed that the French would happen very naturally because I've always been educated in English um, and my English is is more confident and more I'm better spoken in English than my husband who is better spoken in French. Um, I always kind of assumed the French would happen naturally and they would have my husband's beautiful rich vocabulary because they would pick up my Mauritian French anyway because it's 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 a very effusive and, and um, a passionate form of the language and looser form of the language. So, you know, I really wanted them to focus on having the, that, that rich um, continental French from my husband, but it didn't. And my eldest, because she was with me all the time and because, you know, I was homeschooling her, for some reason, everyone would speak English to her. And she actually picked up on her French a lot later. She was a lot more hesitant. She started a sentence, sentence in French and then, and then finish it in English or she'd struggle for the words. And um, thankfully, when she was about three or four, that sort of corrected itself when she started doing extracurricular activities. Um, but then with my second one, the most, the strangest thing happened where I think we overcompensated and she came out and just spoke French. <laughs> and then now is back to struggling more in her French. But I think now that I've had both my kids, now that I've gone back to work as a teacher, now that I've also started my own language school and I'm involved with more children um, here in France, I'm a lot less concerned about these things because they tend to kind of iron themselves out and children are designed to learn and are designed to adapt to their environment and designed to communicate. So at the end of the day, I'm not as sort of worried as I used to be. So in my house, there is uh, English and French from me and from the parents, uh, from my, my sorry, my husband. Um, there is, uh, the TV is mostly I like the source language. So if it's in English, it's English. If it's a French program, it's in French. It's not too much TV in my house. There is a little bit of iPad time during the homeschool day, which is in whatever language. So English, French, or Spanish. Um, there is a Spanish babysitter who comes and takes care of my children because I really want them to have the basis in that language. And the girls actually are quite, are quite not, not definitely not fluent, but they understand a fair bit. Um, there is also, we also have my, my father-in-law living with us who speaks only French, so he speaks French to them. And we also have a, a nurse carer for him who is Mauritian, who speaks Creole. So there are four languages at work in my house at all times, and I absolutely love it. And my girls absolutely love it as well. And I don't think I would have it any other way. Wow, that is really amazing. Um, how old are your daughters now? My girls are, are six. One is turning six now and the other is eight. Okay. So you are homeschooling them. So they've never been to school. So you've been their homeschool teacher. So when you approach their homeschooling, how do you divide the languages and what sort of resources do you use? And um, like, what's, what's your day like with, or maybe your week like with homeschooling? Okay. So with homeschooling, um, I apparently am a bit of a masochist because I design my own curriculum. Um, so, so basically to begin with, because, um, of the laws here in France, we're inspected. And if you want to keep homeschooling, you have to prove that you have been homeschooling your kids, basically, and they're not sitting at home, you know, scratching their heads <laughs> all day. So, um, I follow a mix of the French curriculum and the equivalent of an English language curriculum in terms of the goals. But on a daily basis, that means that the core subjects are in French because they will be 
assessed in French, so to speak, when, when they're inspected. So, and also because French is a lot more of a complex language in its reading, in its, in its phonetics, uh, as compared to English. Although English is incredibly irregular, uh, French is more complicated. So it made sense to me to start with that basis in literacy. So my daughters are learning to read and write in French. Coming with that, accompanying that is also cursive because in France you need to learn cursive. You don't print like they do now in, in America and in, and in the UK and other parts of Europe, which again is the more complex thing to do. So I'd rather start with something complicated and then they discover how easier things can get afterwards and they love it because obviously they don't know any different. Um, so our core languages are in French. A lot of our reading books or our science or our history, et cetera, et cetera, I will borrow from books in all different languages. And um, I'm at the point now where my eight-year-old is a confident reader in French and I'm starting to introduce English, although, again, I had planned for it to be the sort of same thing where I introduce the phonetics and we work through it. But actually, once the child, and this is the language teacher speaking, has acquired the... Um, the, the the thought process to decode language it's so much easier the second time because it is the same script we're not talking about you know latin script and sanskrit here um or chinese characters so once she's understood that this letter plus this letter plus this letter makes the sound and she has a knowledge of english anyway she's actually finding it very easy to decode things in english by herself so as much as i planned for a formal introduction to written english it hasn't actually taken place and i'm i'm um, I treat my, my homeschool because I am a language learner myself and, and I, I'm a teacher at heart, at the basis of my poetry and my writing, all these things, I am a teacher. Um, I treat it a little bit like an experiment in that I see where things go. And it's fascinating to see how some things happen very naturally and some things that I assume would have just clicked into place actually need you know uh, formal instruction or formal practice so our homeschool pretty much is determined by that the core is in French we're adding English to it now and then we will be adding Spanish to it now because as I said before the child's brain is a sponge and they are keen to learn and keen to understand and any confusion tends to kind of iron itself out as the time goes goes by you know so I think often because I often have people French France is not known um, France is a country that um, holds so strongly to its own language because its own language is such a beautiful one and so many classics have been written, it's had such influence in the world, but it's been to its detriment because it has not put emphasis on foreign languages as much as um, Spain or Germany or, you know, the, the the Scandinavian countries where the average child speaks three languages fluently already. So often French children are, are monolingual. Um, and, and so a lot of parents come to me and like, oh, how do you get your kids to be bilingual? Or how do you this or how do you that? And then they kind of panic. They're like, oh, but if I put the TV on in English, obviously in a French household, then the child will get confused. Or if my husband speaks Italian to the, ha to the child and I speak French, the child will get confused. And you know kids, kids are meant to deal with have you ever imagined that coming out of your mother and then being in this world is just non-stop confusion like their brains are designed to fall into place and to categorize and to understand and to make sense when they are um, intellectually mature enough to do so so all of these kind of misgivings we can have and hesitations we can have to give our children more language or give our children more of this and that are really not very founded I think 
I mean, I don't mean that you should sign your child up for like, you know, seven extra hours of another language. I'm not talking about formal teaching, but I'm talking about exposure to something that the child is very much designed to handle. If you look at little children in India, for example, many of them, many Indian, the average Indian person speaks about five different languages, you know, their family language, their tribal language, their regional language and English and Hindi because they're the national languages. Nobody's thinking twice about that, you know. Um, all over Africa, it's the same thing. How many children will speak their tribal language, their regional language, and then English or French? And nobody bats an eyelid. So I think that we can really overcomplicate things um, when it comes to our children and how they can respond to to absorbing languages. I feel like I've gone on a tangent. No, I'm just I'm just wrapped, and I agree with everything you're saying. Um, it, children really are primed to learn language and they will take in what we give them. So if we're able to offer them, like you were saying, rich interactive experiences and exposure to multiple languages, then that's what they're going to absorb. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we mustn't also put often, I think, but we do that in every area of parenting, we put our experiences on them, you know, because I find English hard to pronounce and I had a horrible English teacher. So I'm not, you know, my kid will hate it or, or because I can't make head or tail of Greek because it's a different script, you know, but actually my youngest Penelope, she's, she's a bit obsessed with Mulan and tigers. So, um, which are healthy obsessions. I mean, she could be obsessed, obsessed with worse things than that. And, um, and so she's determined to learn Chinese. And my first thing was, how are we going to fit that in? <laughs> and I know nothing of, of Chinese script. I know nothing, absolutely nothing of Asian languages. Um, and then I thought, well, you know what? She'll find her way. And so I've been looking at courses for her and books and resources. And it's going to be an exciting adventure to see how she has it as her own sort of thing and how her brain adapts to it and how she finds a place to categorize that in her mind. Yeah, yeah. And and what you were saying about um, responding to the child and observing what they need and what they're interested in. That's a very Montessori approach. Very much so. A lot of Montessori, one of, one of the things that I realize now often talk, because the issue is obviously Montessori isn't patented. So, you know, anyone can be like, this is Montessori. And it's a thing that is happening very much so in, I, I imagine in America too, but very much so in Europe, everyone's opening a Montessori school and doing a Montessori this and that. And as a teacher, someone who's trained, I'm a bit like, hmm. Not exactly, but anyway. Um, but what I think fundamentally uh, Maria Montessori's uh, foundations of education are common sense. Uh, she's someone who mm -hmm. spent time with children and knows how children work. It's it's not more complex than that, you know? Um, and that's why Montessori, I mean, obviously your podcasts are doing this. It, it can be such a lifestyle in the sense that you're actually looking at the child not as a mini adult, but as a child with a child's needs, just like a cat has a cat's needs and a plant has a plant's needs, a child has a child's needs. And it's not more complicated than that, really. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good summary of Montessori. You know, I've been, I've been working in the Montessori sphere for about 10 years, and it's so hard for me to sum it up still <laughs> in a in a short amount of words, but I, I'm going to use that. Um, a child Please has a child's do. needs. <laughs> uh, and I also loved what you were saying about um, uh, teaching writing and reading and writing in different languages and how once a child knows the process of reading and knows how to decode that the other mm. languages come easier after that. I talk to parents a lot about, um, you know, the pros and cons of teaching to read in one language versus teaching to read in two languages at the same time. And I do tend to err on the side of 
teach the child to the process of reading in one language because then it flows in the other languages absolutely there's a difference as you say between reading teaching to read teaching you know reading skills and teaching literacy which is being able to read it's the process of it is completely different and especially if you ever add into the mixed languages that are a different script I mean that's a I have not I have not personally had to do that so I can't speak about that but definitely it's something that that can't be mixed up with both however um I think as you mentioned before exposure is so important that they are exposed to the language and that you know when 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 she's pointing out what does that word say and it's a word in English I will tell her because maybe in her brain and in fact it has happened with my eldest where she's remembered that you know, consonant, vowel, consonant made that sound in English. And therefore, when she came across consonant, vowel, vowel, consonant again, she could work it out without her French um, process, you know, um, what, what's it called when you blend words? Oh, I forget the name for, for it. Um, without that interfering, um, just because of the mode, sort of the the, the the visual memory of the, the what the word looked like, you know. So, yeah, it's important, I think, to, to not to not confuse when a child is learning a process and then when a child is actually consuming content of something. So let's talk a little bit about your writing. Tell me about what your experience has been writing in different languages. Did you always write in multiple languages or was that something you started doing as an adult? Uh, And what is your process like? Well, no, it's something that came to me as an adult and it took me completely by surprise. Um, I started writing of all things in, in, I started writing in English and then all of a sudden a whole bunch of poems come out in Spanish, which is my fourth language. Um, And I was obviously incredibly hesitant and confused, to be honest, as to why my muse decided that that was the way they were going. Um, But the poems came out, they were being published they were accepted. One of my greatest um, moments of sort of pride in my in my poetry career is when they were published in a Mexican Latin American magazine. So alongside other native speakers, and I was receiving people's feedback about you know I love this poem, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, whatever, whatever. And um, my pen name is a is a is a is a Hispanic one as well. So people assumed that I was, and I, I suppose I passed for for someone from Latin America. So people assumed that I was Latin and they heard my accent and they're like, where are you from? Um, so there, that was definitely something that was very uh, surreal, but I enjoyed it. But I've always obviously clearly said, especially because, you know, Latino voices, I know in America particularly are not, are not given the platform they deserve. So I've never said, you know, I'm a Latina writer, anything of the sort, cause I'm not. Um, so that's how it started. And then from then on, I just, poems just, they they sort of when I started writing them and publishing them seriously, let's say, they would sort of fall out of me, and it was all just one big experiment. Um, and often a poem would come to me in Spanish, or in English, or half in English, half in Spanish, or half in English, half in Spanish with some random line in French, and um, and that's just how it was. And I tried to fix it because my concern was again we have such a uh, a Euro, well, Eurocentric, American-centric, Anglo-centric, white-centric view on the world. So my thing was, but my readers won't understand, <laughs> you know, my poor readers. Um, so I need to translate it, or I need to footnote it, or I need to put it in italics, or I need to do something to make it easier for my poor suffering readers, uh, which is incredibly patronizing to them. And um, 
and none of it worked. I would try to edit it back into English and it wouldn't work. I'd try and sort of tone it that it wouldn't work. I tried to use very continental Spanish and not the Chilean Spanish that I've learned. It didn't work, you know, so, so it just felt like I wasn't being true to my art form. And so I left it as that. And in the end, what was born was my book, Cajoncito, which is um, a Spanish word. Um, I don't know if you speak Spanish, but it's, it's it means little box or drawer. And uh, it's completely bilingual in that every poem exists in the original language and then is translated into Spanish. And if it's in Spanish, translated into English. And then within it, there are poems that have up to my five different languages in them. So because that's how they came out. And so as well as being obviously poetry, something that is close to my heart, linguistically, it was also a fascinating process to work with a translator and translating poetry. I've worked in translation um, in the past. It's not like translating anything else because you're translating something, it's like translating a painting, you're translating something that's abstract, so you need to have the sentiment and the emotion and the image, but it's not necessarily the exact image because it doesn't work in the other language. And when you're when you're translating your own work, it's such a tricky thing because I know my intention behind this poem. So I might be trying to write my intention into the translation, whereas it should just be translated as neutrally as possible for a reader. Um, so it, it, it was a fascinating process putting this book together um, on a linguistic level as well as on an artistic level. And then from then, um, my muse kind of calmed down with Spanish and I began writing about Mauritius. I think I found my voice as a poet and then I began to explore motherhood and postpartum depression and, you know, lovely, cheerful subjects like that. And I began writing about Mauritius and colonial identity and my lack of feeling Mauritian and not Mauritian enough and really not fitting anywhere. And, and language obviously is a big part of that. So language was not only the tool by which I wrote things in Creole or things in French, but it was also <clears throat> the subject that I write about. And um, and often it is, it's something that I explore because the difference in language <clears throat> is something that really, really speaks to me and that I'm fascinated with. I always say that language is an ambassador of culture. Spanish has three words for love, has eight words for beautiful. Um, French has no word for kindness, which says a lot, you know. <laughs> but it's true that there's there's different things that, that you know, English, there's certain, there's certain forms that cannot be pronounced. Um, for example, things like having a crush or just having sex with someone don't exist in Romance languages because automatically they talk about love. So there's there's a lot to be said for the culture. And that's something that I like to explore. Um, because it's like I've been given a secret VIP pass through these languages to see these kind of different cultures uh, all over the world. A lot of them colonial or ex-colonies with, with sort of all of that history of, of, of abuse and violation, et cetera, et cetera, and suffering. Um, and so that's definitely something that I'm working into, into my writing. I'm actually working on um, novels at the moment, but a collection based on Mauritius that is going to be very much multilingual in Creole. Um, and it's an interesting thing again because I always have that feeling of who's gonna who's gonna actually read this. I mean, you know, it's such a very very niche poetry is already a niche market, and then Mauritian Creole poetry is even tinier. And in Mauritius, I'm often not Mauritian enough to be considered Mauritian because I because of my life, um, my background. Um, so it's a very interesting artistic endeavor, 
And for anyone who thinks, okay, you just kind of throw another language in there. No, it's not so simple. There are artistic layers, personal layers, political layers, linguistic layers. You know, there's also, there's so many things at play when you're presenting something in a multilingual way. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting what you're saying about, you can learn a lot about a culture by the language and the words they do or do not have terms for. Um, In Italian is one of the languages I speak and there's no word for privacy in Italian. Wow. (laughs) So you use the English word, low privacy. (laughs) I didn't know that, but that, that exactly, that's an incredibly telling, telling thing. (laughs) My goodness. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that you were also writing children's books right yes. now. Tell me about those. So um, so I'm writing children's books about a whole variety of things. Some of them are series. It's all um, younger children, mostly sort of picture book formats. None is sort of middle grade chapter books. And um, my multilingual ones that I'm working on, my idea is that they will be based in the different countries that speak the languages. So one of them is about an insect football team that will be based in the jungle of Mexico. Um, And I would like to add into that vocabulary of the animals and then vocabulary of sort of the environment. So it's a natural sort of way, you know, just to to kind of gain that vocabulary. Another Another one will be based in Mauritius and I'd like to add sort of Mauritian um names for the different plants in the different places um I love picture books I love children's literature like I I I think I care more about my kids library than they do to be honest um and um there's so much great work out there at the moment exploring a diverse range of voices and it's a wonderful thing because I mean who is who will appreciate the diversity of the world more than children, you know, who are just ripe for exposure to all these things. And so, um, so yes, I'm, I'm working on those and I'm also going to be setting up when those books are sort of more, um, it's further down the publication line because I think they will be traditionally published. I won't be self-publishing them. Um, I also will be running a children's poetry podcast to kind of accompany that. It'll be poetry in English because through my poetry connections as a poet, I actually find a lot of friends who write children's poetry and excellent children's poetry with rhymes and alliteration and wonderful linguistic devices that actually think will be very useful for uh, ESL uh, children, children who are wanting to learn English. And um, and just something you can put on 10 minutes of poetry, even if they don't understand it, it's it's the sound of it, it's the rhythm, et cetera, et cetera. So I will be working on launching that as well as at the same time. Um, it'll be called Lizzie's Poetry Corner. And um, and yeah, so that will kind of be something something altogether. A lot of a lot of my my stories, I think, when I'm writing my children's stories are are uh based on empowering children. There's um a series that I've got that that'll be a little girl scientist solving problems for her parents. She's a princess as well. She solves problems for her parents' kingdom. Um, there will be, you know, insect football teams and rabbits who save the day and all sorts of things. I really want children to be able to read it and for it to be feel good stories and um, enjoyable, beautiful, beautifully made uh, illustrations. Children's books are a market that is fairly saturated. So um, it's going to be tricky to get them published, I think. But I think that there is definitely room for beautiful aesthetic books that also have a multilingual element to them. And it's the kind of book that I would want to buy for my kids. So that it's sort of with that 
in mind that I'm I'm going about this this different avenue of my of my creativity. Oh wow, that's so exciting. I also love children's books. Mm-hmm. I like I said I don't have my own children, but I used to be a teacher and I had lots of books that belonged to me that I now I still have because I love children's books so much. Um yeah, and you know, it is a saturated market, but not all of the books are beautifully illustrated, for example, oh. or have that rich language and certainly not multilingual. So I'm excited to see them. You'll have to keep me posted on, on when you. they come I out. Will. I will definitely. You mentioned you are teaching in a language school. So tell me about your teaching work. I am. Um, I taught at the British Council here in France. I've taught in Chile. I've taught in Mexico. I've taught in Mauritius, um, and in the UK. Um, and what I've actually recently done is I've set up my own. Um, I guess it would be called a foundation in English, and it's a creative foundation. So in the future, I plan to use it to run writing retreats and things like that. But for now, the branch that I'm focusing on is uh, my branch called the Little Language Club, and. Um, and it will be offering holiday camps in English of immersion in English for children locally and then perhaps further out, who knows what will happen. But it's really to emphasize because there's this, especially here in France, because France is a very traditional country and and, and uh, education wise, um, they're not as forward thinking as perhaps uh English-speaking countries are and the Scandinavian countries are. There's a lot of emphasis on rote learning and, um, you know, memorization and everything being sort of like that. Whereas, as we know, studies have shown that that's not the best environment for kids to learn in. So what I will be offering is um, learning through play, basically, where the children will come during the holidays and spend however many hours in my language school. And me and the other teachers will be just accompanying them in the exploration of a picture book, which we will then work on to get the vocabulary, all the classics, you know, the very hungry caterpillar, rainbow fish, all those things that have been done to death that we know like the back of our hand, don't we, as teachers. Um, And with that, just full immersion. And my idea behind it once again was seeing how I would want my children to be taught another language. So as well as using picture books, we're also going to be exploring nature. So we'll be doing nature studies, learning the parts of a flower, we'll be baking, learning food, learning measurements, et cetera, et cetera, obviously depending on the age of the children. So really offering something that is not a language course. There's no textbooks, there's no grammar. If you want that, that's available elsewhere, the British Council, Wall Street, all these places are providing that already. But to really provide something that has some heart to it, something that is on the children's level, something that they will leave not knowing um, how much they've learned, but feeling like they had a really, really enjoyable, stimulating time. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And children really learn so much through play and through interaction. They do. And until later than we think, we assume that sort of stops at like three, four, five. But I mean, as grownups, we learn from play, don't we? Right. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of, of letting children you know have their fun kind of thing obviously within a secure environment and whatever you're you you as the teacher that's your responsibility to know what's happening and what they're being um, taught but fundamentally they have no idea they're learning they're just having fun yeah absolutely what advice would you give to parents who are interested in raising their children with multiple language 
And I guess you you said that you speak to some French parents who ask you this question, won't my child be confused? Um, so maybe parents who either speak multiple languages themselves and haven't jumped in with their children yet or who are interested in learning another language with their child, what advice would you give to them? I would say uh, to make it manageable because I'm all for making parenting manageable. <laughs> Um, choose an aspect of your life that you can introduce multilingualism into. If it's as simple as now TV is in whatever other language, then do that. I have actually taught children who have come to me with a very good level of English simply because their parents decided that from childhood TV was only in English. I'm talking about French children, obviously. And I'm really amazed, but it's true because they're enjoying it. They're absorbing it. They're seeing the images, you know, it's, it's, it's useful to them. If you have a certain amount of hours a week that you can dedicate to it with your child, then maybe we go shopping with a, a shopping list in that language. We come home, we prepare a meal in that language. But set out a specific space of your life, a specific portion, and start with that. Because if you're just going to be like, hey, I'm going to shout words of Greek to you, <laughs> that's not going to work for anybody, you know? Or maybe the routine will be in English. I think as much as we can um sort of leaning on leading on for that from that week as much as we can simulate immersion to whatever extent is always useful um put labels on everything in the other language so your child sees it whether or not they're of reading age because even if they are not reading you can say this is the sock drawer you know this is where we put our shoes shoes and they will learn children pick things up so quickly um or shopping lists as i said in in the other language um uh, you know, the, the, the food we only talk about in this language, a certain card game, a certain activity, a trip to the library, whatever it is, compartmentalize it in a set in, 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 in a way that is manageable to you and then work out from there. Um, if you are confident in a language, maybe you have a whole afternoon that you're only going to speak that language and the kids have to keep up and make it fun. Do it while you're doing an obstacle course or while you're gone to the park or, you know, not not when they're actually needing your help or something and they're getting frustrated because they don't know what you're saying. Um, so I would say, yeah, make it as manageable as possible and then simulate immersion. Put on the TV, put on podcasts. When my poetry podcast is out, put that on in English. Um, you know surround them with it as much as possible look at a label you know can you pass me the the tomato pass moi les tomato s'il te plaît for example you know can you show me une banane uh you know can you show me algo de rojo rojo toca rojo touch something red there's so many ways in which you can kind of introduce it um and i think if we compartmentalize it into a small portion of our lives it makes it a lot more manageable and make it fun for yourself too otherwise you will just give up and also, last thing, last thing, if you can afford two, don't afraid to outsource because sometimes it's a lot, just all of the linguistic, linguistic responsibilities on your shoulders is a lot. For example, I'm fluent in Spanish, but I cannot be the Spanish teacher for my children because they already have English, French and Creole for me. I cannot, it's not like they can't handle it. I cannot handle that. It's too much for me to be consistent with. So that's why they have a Spanish babysitter who comes along and speaks Spanish to them regularly. Yeah, and I think it's so... Um it's so important to start small and to not feel like it has to be all or nothing. Like you were saying, Absolutely. it can be small portions of your day. It can be one aspect to start with and then it can grow from there. Um, but it doesn't have to be, if you can't go all in full immersion all the time, that doesn't mean that you can't do it at all. 
Exactly. And don't despise small beginnings because they really do build up. And even if your child is not, you know, bilingual by the end of the week, this is something you're investing for their lives, for their whole lives. You're investing not just in the language you're getting them to be exposed to, but you're also investing in all of the thought process processes and all of the, you know, the mechanics of learning another language and appreciating something that is different to themselves that will open the door for them linguistically, psychologically, culturally, you know, um, interpersonally on so many levels. It is such a such a a beneficial exercise to do with your children. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. One thing that I like to tell parents is, you know, it's not just the brain processes of learning another language that we're exposing children to. It's even just the idea that people speak a different language, people have a different culture, live in a different way, and to get them curious about other people and other parts of the world. And then even if children, you know, don't become fully fluent in a language in childhood, they can choose to study that language in high school or college. And they have even even the foundation of having been exposed to an accent in childhood will help them when they study that language later. Exactly. We're raising people who can be citizens of the world and can have an openness of mind towards the world. And in fact, it's something that my father always says, because it's very curious that I went off and did, I studied um, modern languages and Latin American politics and history. And it's not very um, common in Mauritius, because we're different, literally two planets apart, sort of Latin America and, and that side of Africa. And, um, but my father was always saying it's because when I was younger, he would play uh, all of these flamenco songs and all the music that he loved he's like oh it comes from me and my mom's like yes I love Gloria Estefan and that's why you speak but who, <laughs> knows, who knows that it's true it might be true you know somewhere that little seed was planted inside of me and my parents were never ashamed to try and sing the words out loud even though they couldn't speak the language but who knows that that might have somehow contributed now to this huge part of my identity as an adult so we must never despise you know these little things that we're kind of sowing in our children's lives when they're young Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've covered so much today. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or say before we wrap up? (laughs) I think I think I have rambled enough. Um, I hope it's beneficial, to be honest. Multilingualism is such a passionate topic for me. Um, No, I would just say, look, if anyone wants to get in touch, I'm online for my writing, but I'm also obviously happy to talk about anything else. Um, You can find me at EMC Writes Poetry at EMC Writes Poetry, one word uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, although I don't know what I'm doing on there, so don't contact me on what's going on with that, Um, or on my website, which is elizabethmcastillo.net. And yeah, I love connecting with people, with mums, with creative mums, with multilingual mums, homeschooling mums and parents, et cetera, et cetera. So I would really love to connect with more people. Get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Well, thank you so much for being here. I have loved talking with you and learning more about your background. And I'm excited to read your children's books when they come out. I'm going to see if I can read your bilingual poetry. My Spanish is very basic, but I'm very interested to see what... Half half um, of it is in English, so... Okay, there we go. (laughs) And, you know, because I speak Italian, I can read... A lot of basics. Of course, you know, of course, it's the same. I, I manage. It's different, but <laughs> I fumble my way in Italian as well. Absolutely, that's the beauty of the Romance languages. You can kind of swap, swap, and you know, switch and swappers and get your way around, find your way around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. It was great speaking with you today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Gabrielle, for having me. You take care.
Thanks again to Elizabeth for joining me on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Elizabeth's bilingual debut collection, Cajoncito, Poems on Love, Loss y Otras Locuras, is available on Amazon, as is her debut ecofeminist chapbook, Not Quite an Ocean. You can find Elizabeth on her website at elizabethmcastillo.net and on Twitter and Instagram at emcwritespoetry. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.